I praise God for the four days that I had in Lisbon, Portugal over last weekend. And I want to thank you for praying for me while I was gone. I was with Pastor Tiago Oliveira, who is the pastor of First Baptist Church of Lisbon, and his family who live there right in the heart of the city. Tiago is working hard in the Lord's strength in a dual role. First of all, he's the pastor of this church that was started in 1915, but is in great need of revitalization. And it is located in a city with very few gospel-preaching, theologically sound local churches. So he's doing that, and then also he is the founder and the president of Martin Butzer Seminary Portugal, which seeks to train Portuguese-speaking pastors to go out and pastor and plant and revitalize churches. And in their first year, started a year ago, they had 18 students. So we praise God with them that they are already beginning to train men to go out with the word. We hope to have a face-to-face -face meeting with Tiago sometime at the end of the summer or early this fall through probably a Zoom call prior to a worship service during that Foundations Hour where we'll learn about the ministry there and how we as a church family could potentially be a part of it. We're going to have more information as we go forward, but it seems to us as elders that we could be helpful partners to this ministry by supporting the seminary especially as they train up men to be strong in the word as they go out to pastor churches. Let us pray and thank God for the way he's opening up doors for our church and also for this time in the word. Lord, I thank you that you are a faithful God. We have been praying that you would help us to find solid missionary partnerships. And Lord, you have been faithfully doing so. We have given the church a commitment that by the end of this year, we wanted to identify another new missionary for us to support. And perhaps this is the man in the ministry that you've given to us. Give us guidance, Lord, as a church, as we continue to lay this ministry of raising up pastors to go out and plant churches and revitalize churches and shepherd churches, Lord. Guide us in this, we pray. We pray for Tiago and the ministry there in Portugal, Father, our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, who, Lord, apart from a different language, are so similar to us, Lord. They love the Lord Jesus. They love the gospel. They love healthy doctrine. And we thank you for them. I pray that their church would flourish there in the city of Lisbon and that you would use Martin Butzer Seminary Portugal, Father, to raise up many men who would go forth and lead churches in a faithful way that we might see the city of Lisbon and Portugal and places all around the world being filled with healthy pastorates, Lord. Lord, I also thank you for this opportunity we have now to open up your word. But Lord, as we want to support those who go out and preach your word, we also want to be preaching the word right here. And Lord, you have given us a message today from the book of 1 Timothy. I thank you for it. I pray that you would use it in the life of our church body, Father, mightily this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. We have just two more sermons in the book of 1 Timothy, today and next week. And in the last 11 verses, Paul provides Timothy with some final instructions for life and for ministry. This morning we're going to consider verses 11 through 16, and then next Sunday we will look at verses 17 through 21. Today we see the Apostle Paul make a contrast between young Pastor Timothy 
and the false teachers that he'd written about earlier in this letter and that we have been hearing about all throughout our study through this letter. If you notice, he begins in verse 11 with the transition, but as for you, O man of God, making a sharp distinction between Timothy and those deceptive men with the aim of giving him and all believers of all days some lasting encouragements toward fruitful living and fruitful gospel ministry. Paul's goal here is that a Christian be successful in the Christian life. And he pursues this goal by first giving a challenge in verses 11 and 12, then giving some motivation in verses 13 through 15, and finally giving a word of praise in verses 15 and 16. So we have a challenge this morning, we have a motive this morning, and we have a praise this morning. And these three, when understood rightly, will help us live the Christian life successfully. So let's begin with the challenge in verses 11 and 12. Look there again with me. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In these two verses, Paul provides four exhortations for Timothy and his other readers. In the Greek original behind our English translations, four words here are in the imperatival form, or the command form. In verse 11, we have the word flee. Also in verse 11, we have the word pursue. In verse 12, we have the word fight, and again in verse 12, we have the word take hold. Four words, flee, pursue, fight, take hold. Four commands he gives as a challenge to this young pastor and to all Christians who read this letter. These are words from a man of Christian authority urging a young believer to go in a very deliberate direction. These are powerful encouragements. To live the Christian life in a way that resists sin, that seeks after the better things of God, that embraces the struggle of the Christian life, and that remains steadfast in the hope of what is to come. So let us take up this challenge from Paul together. First exhortation that he gives us is to flee. Flee from all aspirations for riches and for vain glory. Now Paul, he really liked this word flee in verse 11, as he used it frequently in his letters. And in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, he said, flee from sexual immorality. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, he said, so flee youthful passions. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14, he said, my beloved, flee from idolatry. He likes this word. And it means exactly what you'd think it means. To avoid or to keep clear of something that is dangerous. If a grizzly bear comes into your close proximity, then you should take all appropriate steps to flee his presence. It is stronger than you and will kill you in a fight, so you must flee. 
If a hurricane is about to bear down upon your beach house, then you should flee further inland. It is more powerful than you. It is stronger than your house, and you should flee. And if there are temptations confronting the man or the woman of God to live in pride or to seek selfish personal gain, then that Christian should flee those temptations. We should flee because we admit before God that we are weak and because we know just how susceptible we really are to life's temptations. Paul writes in verse 11, flee these things. And he's referring, I think, to the things that he's already mentioned in verses 3 through 10. We always compare a passage with its context. What are these things he's talking about? I think likely the things he's already mentioned in the verses prior to our passage. The false teachers of Timothy's day taught a different doctrine than the pure gospel of Jesus Christ because they were men who were full of full of arrogance and full of self-assuredness and because they craved the verbal victories which stroked their massive egos. Look again at verses 3 and 4 of this chapter. He says, "Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slanders, evil suspicions, and so forth. So these men, they are marked by arrogance and self-assuredness, and they desire to have verbal victories which stroke their massive egos. That's what drives them. That's the temptation that wins out over these men. Furthermore, these men also taught such false things instead of the gospel because they believed that in doing so, they would be able to achieve financial prosperity. Look at verse 5. He says, And constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth imagining that godliness is a means of gain. They think that if they teach well enough and get enough people to like the things that they say and to believe that they win out in their arguments, that they'll get people to give them money and they'll be able to make their living off of teaching such falsehoods. So they are tempted to use their influence to become rich and wealthy. That is the temptation that motivates these men. So the things Timothy was to flee appear to have been a conceited attitude along with the pride of victorious argument and the quest for financial wealth. You see, for Timothy, a man who was in authority, who taught people for a living with the spoken word, he, he taught people for a living with the spoken word, and he secured his livelihood the very bread on his table was secured through the gospel ministry. That's what his life was. And if you, if you think about that, you realize that those temptations would have been rather acute. They would have been severe in strength. So he was to flee from the temptations to think too highly of himself. He was to flee from the temptation to want to one-up others in verbal disputes. And he was to flee from the temptation to become wealthy 
in his life and ministry. He was to run from such things. Now, perhaps not all of these, but I would guess at least one of these areas is also a temptation point for you. Do you easily succumb to pride? Do you find yourself eager to win arguments? And in your heart, are you tempted to seek after more and more acquisitions or after ever greater financial success? Well, these temptations, like many other temptations, are extremely powerful, as I think you know. In fact, they are too powerful for us as we battle against the sinful flesh. And so, like Timothy, we too must flee them. And we do so, this is important, we do so, we flee them by remembering the end of those who choose not to flee them. This is really important to understand. One of the most important ways that we flee sinful temptation is by remembering the end of those who choose not to flee temptation. Look at verse 4. In that verse, we learn that these men, these false teachers, they understood nothing. So these are guys who lived in ignorance of salvation. Look at verse 5. In that verse, we learn that they were depraved of mind and deprived of the truth. That's not a blessed condition to find yourself in. And then notice verse 9. It says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So the end of such sin is destruction. If you succumb to that temptation, if you give yourself over to that temptation like these men had, then the end of that is destruction. And we, if we are Christians, Flee from these things by remembering the end for those who pursue such things and by redirecting our minds away from such things. One of the great gifts of God is that he gives us warning points, warning signs along the way. Do not enter. Don't go down that road. And when we see these men who give in to these temptations and what God says their end will be, that is a warning sign that tells us, don't go that way Flee from it and instead reorient your mind to things that God would rather have you think about. Pride, winning disputes, seeking financial wealth, those are avenues that take you to death. But the Lord Jesus Christ has provided a better way, a way in which we can pursue. And that leads us to the second exhortation here. Pursue, he says. Pursue likeness with Christ. After being told to flee such things in verse 11, Timothy is next told to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. So he was to turn his back and run from those temptations, and then he was to chase after some far better things, some things which actually last and have eternal value, not like the trinkets of this earth that are here for a moment and then they're gone, but things that have lasting, eternal value. He was, Paul says, to pursue righteousness, 
which almost certainly in this context has to do with upright behavior before God. Righteous, God-honoring, gospel-consistent, obedient living. Rather than following the path of those men, he was to pursue the path of obedient righteousness. He was also to pursue godliness, it says, which, as we have learned through this book, is to live with an awesome respect towards God, which translates into holiness of life. To see God for who he is, embrace him in love and proper God-honoring fear, and as a result, live accordingly to that fear. Next, he was to pursue faith and love, which are essential to Christian living. He was to pursue growth in his trust in God and growth in his affection toward God and towards God's people and towards all people. My, my friends, Christians, did you know that you can actually grow in your faith towards God and that you can actually grow in your love for the Lord and for other people? That over time, you can actually become strong in both faith and love. Paul's charging him to do this. He doesn't charge him because Timothy's incapable of honoring that charge. He charges him because Timothy is capable of honoring that charge. And finally, he was to pursue steadfastness and gentleness. To be steadfast is to display a stick-withitness, an endurance, a staying power, a life fortitude. And to be gentle is to display the opposite of an overbearing attitude. Sometimes we best define words by defining what they are not. To be gentle is to display the opposite of an overbearing attitude. It is to approach other people with a confident graciousness rather than with an insecure demand. So Timothy was to pursue fortitude in his life and ministry, while becoming more and more gracious in his relationships with others. My friends, Timothy was to be a man's man. He was to be a man's man, which has nothing to do with a will to dominate others or even the ability to operate power tools. <laughs> he was to be a man's man by growing in faithful Christian resolve while displaying remarkable Christian gentleness. Man's men are men who are gentle and resolved to look to Christ evermore. Christian, did you know that you can grow in steadfastness with God and that you can grow in gentleness before other people? Essentially, Timothy was to be like the Savior, Jesus Christ. He was to be godly. And as we learned in verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. And such growth in godliness is accomplished through the power of the word of God. Paul doesn't go into detail here about the steps Timothy should take to grow in these ways. But he does in his next letter to Timothy. He says in 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 and 17, these wonderful words which I encourage you to commit to your memory. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
The word of God is powerful to equip and shape God's people. If you want to be transformed, the word of God is the key tool that's used to do so. My friends, prayerfully sitting under the Bible with a church family is essential to this pursuit. It is essential to this pursuit. If you want to grow in those four exhortations, fleeing, pursuing, fighting, and as we're going to see, grasping here in a minute, you must pursue it in the word with a church family. That's what Paul has been encouraging throughout this letter. The third exhortation he gives is to fight for faithfulness in life. This word, these words, the faith, in verse 12, could refer either to faith as the content of Bible teaching or gospel doctrine, and he does that often. He uses the words the faith in that way to refer to the content of Bible teaching or gospel doctrine. Or the words the faith could refer to the reliance upon God that is expressed by every Christian. And the grammar here behind these words, the faith, in the Greek, I think it likely has it in reference to that second option here. Faith as the reliance upon God expressed by every Christian. So in verse 12, it's not a struggle for the faith, for Christian doctrine, but the struggle of faith, of faith towards God. Timothy was challenged here to see the Christian life as a battle, as a fight. It was a battle to live in faith every day in the midst of a city full of conceited, argumentative, greedy opponents. Can you imagine it, pastoring in that context? And it's a good fight he was to wage, it says, not because fighting is so grand, but because if ever there was a reason to fight, fighting for faith was it. He was to live life with his spiritual gloves up against messaging that sought to redirect his mind away from the sure words of Jesus Christ. Now again, this does not mean that he becomes an argumentative person towards those argumentative men. It does not mean that he becomes a jerk to them. It does mean that when false messaging comes, he's willing to defend his church by stating truth, and he's willing to guard his, his heart by clinging to the truth. We fight not with physical weapons or with fists, but we fight with the truth of God. And we do so always, like the Savior Jesus Christ, with the spirit of love for the other person. So he was to fight. And friends, realize he was a pastor. And yet he was directed to fight the good fight of the faith, which, which should tell us that every Christian, regardless of calling, must take up this fight of faith. You see, we too are in the midst of false messages. We too are in the midst of counterfeit gospels, along with the moral darkness that is all around us, that if we follow the news, if we step outside, we hear and see every single day. This is one reason why we all so desperately need the local church, which Paul so heavily promotes in this letter, because we cannot fight the good fight on our own. There has never been, nor will there ever be, a successful Lone Ranger Christian. The only successful Christians are those who are with other needy Christians, who recognize that we need each other, 
as we need the word of God to influence and shape us and to help us. The writer of Hebrews spoke to this when he said in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Oh, my friends, we need to commit to each other as members of a local church. We need to encourage each other by regular, frequent gathering. We need to build each other up because it is a very hard day in which we live as we await the day of the Lord which is to come. You need the person next to you, my friend. Our fourth exhortation here is grasp, take hold. Grasp the eternal life that you've already embraced. In verse 12, Paul writes, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. To take hold of something is to grab hold of it so as to make it your own. Timothy, who had already had eternal life secured to him as a believer in Jesus Christ, was told to take hold of it. He was to grasp it tightly in his mind, constantly remembering that his lasting citizenship was not in this world, so temporary and so full of dark falsehoods, but his citizenship is in a kingdom of light which is certain to come. He's to constantly be grasping that. This is the same exhortation for all believers of all days. We must all tightly grasp in our minds the certainty of our heavenly citizenship as we walk in the midst of a very hard world. Oh, my friends, I don't know what your earthly nationality is, but it pales in comparison to your heavenly citizenship if you have Jesus Christ. And you are far better off, I think the word clearly tells us, if your mind is more directed towards your heavenly citizenship than your earthly nationality. See yourself as a citizen of heaven. Take hold of eternal life. Timothy had been called to this eternal life, verse 12 says referring to the effectual call of God upon his life, wherein Timothy's eyes were opened by the Holy Spirit to the gospel, and wherein he repented of his sins and believed in Jesus Christ. What's more, he had once made the good confession about this eternal life in the presence of many witnesses, it says. Now, this could be referring to either one of two events. Scholars usually land in one of two places here on this. It could be a reference to his baptism when he would have confessed his faith in Christ and the confidence he had of eternal life through salvation in Jesus. That's possible. Or it could refer to his pastoral ordination when he would have publicly confessed his commitment to gospel doctrines, including the certainty of eternal life. Well, likely, verse 12, I think, refers to his ordination because baptism is not a key theme of this letter, while Timothy's ordination certainly is. Back in chapter 4, verse 14, for instance, it says, Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. 
that's pretty clearly talking about his ordination to become a pastor. So Timothy was to hold fast to the certainty of eternal life just as he had once confessed it before the church at his ordination before the church. He was to hold tight to what he'd already confessed and what he'd already declared as his own. He'd already believed it, he'd already said that he believed it, and now he was to grasp it. You see, sometimes, my friends, it is very helpful to restate what we already know to be true. Timothy already had the gospel. He already had eternal life. And he knew all of this to be true. And yet he was to remember it, grasping it tightly in his mind. Because such remembrance would be a profound encouragement to him throughout his life. When he sees men striving to get earthly gain and to gather riches... He can remind himself by grasping the gospel that what he has in Christ is so much more valuable than what they have. And on the day that Jesus Christ returns, all of that is going to pale in comparison. And it's frankly going to look ridiculous. He too needed to restate in his mind what he already knew. And we need to restate what we already know to be true. Reminding ourselves of the eternal life that we have been promised in Jesus Christ. These four exhortations, flee, pursue, fight, grasp, they are powerful encouragements to live the Christian life in a way that resists sin, that seeks after the better things of God, that embraces the struggle of faith, and that remains steadfast in the hope of what is to come. So let me challenge us as a church family, Riverside. Let us take up this challenge together and help each other to fight and pursue, fleeing from the things of this earth and grasping what we have in Jesus Christ. So we've seen the challenge. He's given him the challenge. Now let's consider the motive. Look at verses 13 through 15 with me. I charge you in the presence of God... Who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. The motivation for the Christian life here is twofold. The one who sees us and the one whom we will see. There are two motives here for the Christian life. The first motive is the one who sees us, and the second motive is the one whom we will see. First of all, let us consider the first motive, the one who sees us. He says, I charge you, verse 13, in the presence of God who gives life to all and of Christ Jesus. Oh, dear friends, do you realize that our lives are lived before the presence of the divine? This idea, it is behind the long-beloved Latin phrase, quorum Deo, which means before the face of God or before the sight of God. R.C. Sproul, he wrote, to live quorum Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. 
But believers are to grasp that all of life is lived before the presence of the divine. That all of life is quorum Deo. All of life is before the presence of God. That he is there. That he sees. That he observes. That he knows all. The Father God who gives life to all created beings is the all-powerful God who is ever-present with us. And his Son, the Savior Jesus Christ, who made the good confession before Pontius Pilate when he testified to his own heavenly kingship, is ever-present with us. In bodily form, he has ascended back into heaven, but he is with us because the Holy Spirit of God is present everywhere, and all of life is lived before him in his sovereign presence. And that should be a sweet, sweet comfort to us as we seek to live the Christian life in success. A sweet, sweet comfort to us that no matter where we go, God's presence and his gracious helping hand is ever with his children who have believed upon his son. This is why the psalmist said, in one of my favorite psalms of all, Psalm 139, these words beginning at verse 7, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Oh, dear Christian, where can you flee from his presence? Nowhere. Where can you go where God does not see and respond with a kind, gracious effort to help? Nowhere. If you have Christ, these are sweet, sweet words that are marked by a sweet, sweet theology. But this should also remind us that the holy God of righteousness is ever in our presence. It is in his presence that we are told to, verse 14 says, keep the commandment. Therefore, we must walk in meekness and dependence before him. Now, the Christian doesn't live in fear of God's condemnation, but we do live in the fear of God. We live in the awesome respect and the acknowledgement that he is the righteous one who sees our acts. And when temptation comes to sin, we can be motivated to fight against it, to flee from it by remembering that he is right there with us. The God who bought us, the God who loves us, the God who's ever with us. That's our first motivation. Here's our second motivation. Let us consider the one whom we will see. Let us consider the one whom we will see. In verses 14 and 15, he says, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. 
Our Lord Jesus Christ will appear. And friends, if you're a Christian, you will see him. We are to keep the commandments until the day when our Lord Jesus appears, the one whom the Father God, it says, will display at the proper time. That is some absolute language employed here by Paul. He expresses confidence that Christ will appear, and then he states, matter of fact, that God will display him at the proper time. Now, we don't know when that time will be, but we do know that it will happen. My brother in Christ, Tim Keller, waited all of his life to see Jesus Christ descend, to see his Lord. But oh, my brother in Christ, Tim Keller, is seeing Jesus Christ right now. And one day he will be resurrected like all of us if we have Christ, and we will see him face to face. Oh, praise God, it's a certainty. It is absolute language. We don't know when this will happen, but we do know that it will happen. And my friends, that is a powerful motive for Christian living. We are to live eternally. Which means we are to live with an eternal mindset that is confident. That as our Lord promised to return for us, so he will one day return. You see... We approach the present by looking to the future. We fight the Christian life by faithfully looking to the life that is to come. Now you have perhaps heard the expression, some Christians are so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. You ever heard that? That is a foolishly ignorant statement. It is. Because if one is truly heavenly minded, waiting in hopeful expectation for the glorious King Jesus to arrive, then he or she will be so set on doing his work in his strength until the day that he returns. You can't love for Jesus and long for King Jesus without wanting to serve Jesus right where you are. You can't really long for a king with authority to come unless you're already seeking to honor his authority right where you are. It's a foolish statement. No, they will be focused upon the Lord, so focused upon the Lord that they'll perform the Lord's work while they await upon the Lord's arrival. Friends, if you want to live the Christian life successfully, then you must attune your minds toward the eternal life which will come to all Christians when the Savior Jesus Christ returns. You must live eternally. You must live with an eternal mindset that works hard where you are in the Spirit's strength all with the motivation of the conquering king who will one day arrive. Therefore, through these motivations, we must live in obedience. In verse 14, Paul tells Timothy to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. Likely, this commandment refers to all of the ethical teaching that Paul has been giving throughout this letter to Timothy all of the instructions that stem from the gospel. And Timothy was to keep these instructions unstained and free from reproach, it says, meaning that he was to be faithful, I think, in his obedience. First, simply as a Christian who sought to obey, and then even more so as a local church pastor who is an example of obedience to a local church. Timothy, 
was to obey the commandment and keep it unstained and free from reproach. And, this is important, he was to keep the commandment by being mindful of these two motives. We're not just told to obey. We're told to obey with the promise that comes with it. We're to keep the commandment by being mindful of two motives, he says here. First of all, that there is one who sees us. And secondly, that there is one whom we will see. How do we honor all of the ethical teaching that we've learned over the last couple of months in this letter? We do so by remembering that all of our lives are quorum Deo. And we do so by remembering that one day our life will see Jesus Christ face to face. That's how we fight with truth about God and his promises. So if you are a Christian, is your life rightly motivated? Or do you have your mind stuck in other places? There is one who sees you, and there is one whom you will see. Do you live with the meek mindset that all of your life is conducted before the presence of God? And do you live in the hope that the Savior you love will one day appear? So we have seen both the challenge and the motive. Now let's consider the praise. In verse 15, middle of the verse, he says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. It seems that Paul just can't help himself here. And he breaks out in a statement of praise. It seems so out of place, doesn't it? This is just like back in chapter 1, verse 17, where after writing about his own undeserved salvation, he stopped what he was writing and he said, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. He stops and he praises. At the thought of how God had saved him, the chief of sinners, Paul's heart couldn't help it, and he burst out in thankful praise. And now... Here in chapter 6, near the end of the letter, after writing about the certain appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, his heart cannot help it again, and he bursts out in an even longer word of praise. And he declares some really wonderful things here about God. He is the blessed and only sovereign. God is the self-content, joyous, happy God, who is the autonomous, all-powerful ruler and master of all things. He's fully happy in himself, and he's fully powerful over all, Paul says. And he is the king of kings and lord of lords, placing him above all other powers and authorities as the rightful God of the universe and the rightful God of all creation. He alone has immortality, Paul says, for he is the source of all life. He is the bestower of all life, and he is the eternal God who has always enjoyed and who will always enjoy life in himself. No one gave him life. 
He is life. He dwells in unapproachable light because the light of truth in him is utter perfection, utterly brilliant, and wondrously holy. And no one, it says, has ever seen him or, or can see him. Echoing the language said to Moses in Exodus 33. For in his matchless perfection, in his complete holiness, it is far, far too much for any created being to be able to behold. And yet, Jesus, the Son of God, who took on human flesh, will one day be seen and held and cherished physically with his people. He reveals the unrevealable God to us. He reveals the unseeable God to God's people. It is to this God that Paul utters his praise. He says in verse 16, To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Paul is right here. He is right here displaying the great joy and the highest end of the Christian life. In fact, he is revealing what a successful Christian life ultimately looks like. You want to know what a successful Christian life ultimately looks like? The successful Christian life, it looks like a worshiper. <laughs> it looks like one who worships. That's the end. It is a life of glad praise to the only deserving God. At the end of the day, the successful Christian life is the Christian who's been bought and paid for, who's been transformed, and who lives to worship the God who saved him. That's a successful Christian life. And you can be a successful Christian if you work at a gas station. You can be a successful Christian if you're 88 years old and don't have a whole lot more to give. You can be a successful Christian if you're eight and don't know a whole lot to share. You can be a successful Christian if you know God and seek to worship him with your life. If you become a worshiper, you'll see God make you ever successful. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I want us to excel as Christians. I want us to live fruitful, successful, joyful lives as believers in King Jesus until the day of his return. And Paul has given us instructions on in how to do this. We must heed the challenge by fleeing from sin, by pursuing the better things of God, by embracing the fight of the Christian life, and by tightly grasping the hope of eternal life. We must be motivated by the fact that all of our lives are lived before the presence of God, and that one day, with absolute rock-solid certainty, we will see our Savior himself. And we must live in praise, because we intimately know and we patiently wait for the glorious God himself, the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So, brothers and sisters of Riverside, heed the challenge, live with true motivations, and respond to God with praise. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. You have not left us as orphans. You have given us your spirit who illuminates our minds to your word. We are so grateful. And in your word, you have given us a path. Lord, you have told us how we can live the Christian life successfully until the day we see your son. Would you help us to do this, Lord? 
Would you help us to be grounded in your word so that we would know all of the challenge, all the motivations, and all the reason for praise that you have given to us, Lord. Guide us, we pray, as a church family. Build your church here at Riverside, I ask. In Jesus' name.